And so we thought, well, maybe we can take a page from the Microsoft playbook and do behavioral testing for recommender system, which means together with online testing, offline testing, and so on and so forth, we can augment the type of testing that we do with some behavioral tests based on the use cases and domain and that we can discuss how to do it. This is not about which model is better or which model is worse. It's about understanding that these models are fundamentally different, but this difference is obscured by standard offline tests. Instead of writing ad hoc analysis or chasing down you know, examples and qualitative failures, Reckless gives you a one-stop shop for you to make all this consideration and to immediately see how these two systems differ. We found that in production setting, going to production early, you know, carefully but early, is the key to be productive ML people. Hello and welcome to this new episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts. This time I'm happy to be joined by Jacopo Tagliabue. Jacopo is the co-founder of Tuzo, which was acquired by Coveo in 2019. And he is actually the director of artificial intelligence at Coveo. Jacopo holds a PhD in cognitive sciences, and he is also an adjunct professor at New York University, where he teaches NLP and ML systems. And in this episode, we will actually talk about one of his contributions, since he also was a contributor to various papers for the SIGIR. One of these papers will be the main topic for today's episode, since we will be talking about behavioral testing applied to recommender systems. Hello and welcome, Jacobo. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here. Great to have you on board. I guess I made a small introduction, but I guess there are many more things to know about yourself. So will you just go further and introduce yourself a bit more? Sure. I mean, the, the, the intro said it all. Well, you know, just to do like a brief recap of previous episodes of my life, not that it's, you know, particularly interesting, but just to set the stage for what we're discussing today. So it's correct. I was, I was of course, one of the founders of Tuzo was a NLP information retrieval company in San Francisco. We, we grew the company, you know, from scratch to, you know, like an up and come, up and running um, API uh, company in the ML space. And we sold it to Coveo almost three years ago. And since then, we've been kind of working on uh, building up the AI practice and the AI roadmap of Coveo, which recently got public. So Coveo became one of the not many, honestly, public AI company in the, in the B2B space uh, in November, I think, in the Toronto Stock Exchange. Together with my team, so we do a bunch of stuff in the recommendation space. We are originally more of a search and NLP people. So we kind of found the recommendation space, uh, you know, as we went along in our e-commerce journey. And, and we do a bunch of research and applied work in session-based recommendations specifically, and then in how to better testing recommendation, which I guess is going to be a huge mm -hmm. part of, you know, what we're going to discuss today. And finally, we've been recently working a lot with people in the MLOps community. Uh, with a lot of open source stuff as well, uh, to kind of show people that, you know, it doesn't really matter how well your recommendation engine performs on your laptop or whatever cluster you have, you need to actually impact real user in production. And so we've been working a bit with the community and some of the new open source and best of breed tools to show how you can bring research level innovation to actual website impact natural users. 
I see. During your work at Etuzo, you mentioned it was an API-focused company. So were there different ML models that were you were basically providing or what was kind of your home turf? So was recommender systems the main thing that you have been working on or was it also many other ML problems that you were dealing with during that time? At Tuzo time, recommender system was actually a secondary use cases. The mm -hmm. main use cases was telecommerce, but it was more about the search component of information retrieval. So okay. it was an API company, meaning that we would provide this to an e-commerce, let's say e-commerce, you know, you know, X, Y, Z. And when you, when, when a user would go there to shop, it will, it will start searching for something and the autocomplete, the intelligence behind the search, you know, all that feedback loop would be provided behind the scene by our API. And then mm -hmm. as part of our, you know, suit of APIs, we also came to develop, of course, recommender system and so on and so forth. But our first solution was about language, which is, you know, our original, like me, like me and, and the other technical co-founder, we were like language people originally. So that's where we started when we built out our first company. So lots about, I would say, query and intent, understanding what people want to search for. and Absolutely. Absolutely. Query understanding, query intent, a bit of semantics. It was before, mm -hmm. you know, the large language model. Like, it was a very different time than today. <laughs> so what, one, one fun thing is that sometimes we ask ourselves, what if we rebuild Tuzo today? And we would do completely different. Like, it's been five years, not a million, but we would yeah. do completely different things because the field has been moving so quickly. Yeah, 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 definitely. De definitely there has been going on a lot of different things. So how did you transition to recommender systems where, I mean, transitioning is maybe not the right term, but how did recommender systems become a more prevalent topic that you that you are or have been dealing with? So there's, there are two things. One is, let's say, business related, so outcome related, and one is um, is one like, let's call it data related. So the mm -hmm. business related one, even at the time of tools, and of course, this is even truer for Covea, which is, you know, much, much more massive, is mm -hmm. that people tends to prefer to have one provider for the entire information retrieval suite. So people would rarely have one provider for search API and one for recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes sense for several reasons. First, because one provider to deal with is better than two usually, but in a more subtle way, uh, if you have one provider like, 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 like Tuzo, Covea, whatever, that unify the experience between search and recommendation, you're going to get a better consistent experience if you have two providers that don't talk to each other. So it makes total sense for a provider to offer both. So this is the business reason. That's the data reason, it's more mm -hmm. opportunistic. Uh, so we find out that to be very good at query intent, like a lot of the things that you were describing before, you need to collect way more data than just the search data. Take a very mm -hmm. simple example. If people search for Nike on a sport apparel website, they may mean tennis apparel if they really like Roger Federer. It may be, I don't know, Neymar if they want to really like soccer or, like, you know, or LeBron James if they like basketball, whatever that is. Yeah. The query itself will not disambiguate perfectly in between these use cases. Mm -hmm. So what you end up doing is to collect what these people were browsing anonymously before searching for Nike. Maybe they were in the tennis section or in the basketball section. And then you adjust the search accordingly. So you actually mm -hmm. find out that to be good at search, you need to kind of collect way more behavior than just the search behavior. And then opens the door to then do all sorts of new machine learning model, you know, like, you know, like, you know, we're data people. So if you feed us data, we're going we're gonna to find ways to work with it. And so that opens up the door to do all the research that we've been doing session-based personalization. Mm -hmm. Because now mm -hmm. we have session-based data and we yep. can do not just search, but we can also do recommender and so on and so forth. 
Okay, so that makes sense. So when Tuzo was acquired by Coveo, what basically changed or what are your responsibilities currently at Coveo? Uh, so of course, you know, going from a company like, you know, six people to one of like <laughs> 700, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big change in many, many respects. Um, you, you, I, I'm less hands-on as I, as I used to be, meaning that of course now there's an entire team that, that take care of what the Tuzo was, you know, was like me at night, you know, like, you know, hacking away stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a bit more detached from, from some of the operational stuff, especially in that engineer, especially in things that are not my focus. Uh, at Tuzo, of course, you, you know, it's a small startup, you do everything. Uh, but at Kobe, of course, you know, like, you know, not necessary for me to do that engineer. There are way better people <laughs> than mm -hmm. me that, that, you know, whose entire job is doing that. Um, and so I, I had a bit more time and resources to focus on what I called asking questions. So my job now is less about finding problems to solve. Sorry, less about solving problems. It's more mm -hmm. about deciding which problems are the one worth, you know, solving. And then together with my team, I, you know, we work together and mentor them to go and actually produce, uh, you know, some working code, a research paper, an open source library, whatever it is. I'm just have been transitioned more of like setting the roadmap of what the company think in this space, especially information mm -hmm. retrieval in commerce, than about making it happen in the first place. I still code quite a bit, but it's more <laughs> for prototype uh, than, than, than for, you know, the entire product as I used to do. Yeah, I guess always nice also not to become fully detached from the from the technical stuff and always also uh, kind of nice for people who are coming from a technical background to, to go back to that if they really loved it and, and still love it. Yeah, talking about recommendations in e-commerce, you have mentioned already also the topic of session-based recommendations. Uh, I mean, there has been plenty of things going on in the recent years, uh, starting from rather simple approaches like KNN then going through the application of word to vec to the domain of recommender systems with product to vec and then over to additional things that capture sequences like for example we had have seen with lstms or gated recurrent units applied to to recommender systems how big is the impact of, of session-based recommendations within your domain and what are currently the the biggest challenges there so first i think it's going to be massive <laughs> it's going to be massive for one reason. So if you think about e-commerce, there's a bunch of e-commerce website, the one that everybody knows, like Amazon, Alibaba, blah, blah, blah. There are two characteristics of this website. People go there very often. So they, they go there and continue. I mean, I buy stuff from Amazon like every, every three days or whatever, a week or whatever. Um, and when you're there, you're always logged in. Okay. So when Amazon data scientists need to build a recommender system for me, Jacopo, as a shopper, they have A, a huge history of purchases you know, like, you know, very, very dense and B, they know exactly who I am. Like, you know, they, they can trace my identity through time. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they know that I'm going to come back. This is awesome for them. But then if you build a company like Tuzo or Coveo for the rest of the market, for the rest of the, of the e-commerce website, you find out that these two factors mm -hmm. are not really near, you know, the same level of, of, you know, of importance for most websites. In most websites, people are not logged in if they don't buy, which is the vast majority of time. Okay. And people may come back, may come back, I don't know, one or two times a year. Mm -hmm. So the last thing they did six months ago, it may not even be relevant for the current preferences. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And finally, bounce rate is high. So people come there, watch two pages, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. What this all means together is that the natural boundary for you to provide personalization, which is something that everybody talks about, but a few people actually are able to do, is the <laughs> session. It's not the user history. 
Mm-hmm. Every provider that is selling you or every model that is relying on user history to do personalized recommendation is doomed to cover a very, very small percentage of your user if you're yeah. not Amazon or Alibaba. So that's a key fact that I think not like that a lot of people don't really fully understand because most of the research agenda or the, you know, or the general, you know, rhetoric about recommender system is set by YouTube, uh, you know, Spotify and Amazon and so on, which of course do not have this problem. They have different problems, but not this one. And I think a lot of the things that my team has been doing in the last three years are kind of evangelizing, even in the research community, of the many interesting research problems that you have when you abandon that, you know, big, large retailers mindset and you mm-hmm. try to make things that works, you know, in the middle of the tail. So this is, so why they're important, they're super important. They're going to be even more important, I think, going forward. Like challenges to, to build them, there's a bunch. Modeling, you mentioned like a very good sequence of, uh, you know, from simple to complex, like KNN, then let's say LSTM, then you can do transformer, like, you know, you can make it as complex as possible. Yeah. And that has been explored in the literature significantly with the trade-off that this implies. Like, you know, KNN may be fast and cheap, but may not be super accurate and transformers may be more accurate, but they're like pain to train, a pain to serve and, and so on. Um, and then of course the engineering challenge. As in, even if you have a transformer model, now it needs to run with 100 millisecond latency to not disrupt the experience of people. It doesn't need to cost a fortune to retrain it. Otherwise, the gain that you get in revenue may not even offset the amount of you know money you spend in training and so on and so forth. So I think it's mm-hmm. still super hard. Still, like it's not an out of the box or off the shelf kind of solution to have session-based recommendation, but the future is there. And, and I'm super excited, you know, for, you know, to work, to, to, to have the possibility of working in this field right now. I guess this is also what sets recommender systems apart from some other uh, machine learning problems, uh, if we want to refer to it by that, that these dynamic user preferences and then this disconnect in user feedback that you might be experiencing on platforms that are less frequently used or where users disconnect from for quite a while and then return after a long time is adding a lot of complexity to the problem and then of course also incorporates that there needs to be hard work put into models that kind of anticipate this and of course places session-based recommendations uh, in a position where this could be a proper model to, 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 to solve for. When I came across your blog post where you mentioned NDCG is not all you need, uh, I was thinking about behavioral testing and how to put it into that framework of testing in general. Because in recommender systems, we have these three folds. Of course, you have standard offline testing and you can argue and discuss a lot about what is a proper metric or the set of metrics. Most of the people focus, of course, on retrieval accuracy metrics, which is not bad at all, but of course, it does not draw the full picture. And this is one setting. So offline testing, then you might have user studies, and of course, you have online testing. For the whole time, I was a bit confused where to put behavioral testing. What actually made you feel that there is a missing piece in testing for recommender systems? And how did you get to the topic of behavioral testing and applying it to recommender systems? So first, totally agree. Recommender system has a huge history of good testing practices, meaning that, you know, the field thought long and hard about this. And of course, the options that you outlines are like, you know, a super standard for, for most research and industry team, uh, offline testing, 
uh, is very easy to, to use and kind of repeatable with its own flaws. And then user study online tests in a way more expensive and requires typically, you know, an entire setup of organizational uh, practices to do that. But they will actually uncover some, you know, nuances that offline testing won't do. And so the question, like, what, what do we, what do we need more of this? Like, you know, the system, the, the, the field as itself has thought long and hard about this. Um, what can we do better? And the uh, spark for behavioral testing came from NLP, my original field, when a bunch of people from Microsoft published a paper end of 2020 on behavioral testing in NLP. And for those of you who don't know, I'm just going to do like a brief example to, to give you the feeling of, of what these people did. So if you consider like large language model, like people, people are super excited about NLP these days, right? And so you get this benchmark and this, this statement of like, hey, BERT is like almost as you good as human in sentiment analysis or in this whatever task and so on and so forth. And the people at Microsoft did this clever study. Instead of just taking the performance on, on BERT on this, on this data set, like you would do for recommendation as well. What they did was built out some input-output pairs that we as human, as users of language, recognize as important, okay? For example, uh, they had this, 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 this super nice test about sentiment analysis and the sentiment, the test is like, let's build out sentences like, I am protected noun as a template. So I am a black woman, I am an Asian man or whatever. Now we're gonna ask this model that people say is our state of the art and as you bet, as good as humans, what they think about the sentiment. And it turns out that most of the models, including public APIs from Azure, Google, and AWS, fail spectacularly at this test. So they, you know, they, they may actually introduce like a negative sentiment when of course the sentence itself is neutral. Okay. And so the general guess is that offline testing will go just, you know, just up until a certain point to tell you how the system generalizes in the wild. Why? Because the test set cases themselves are a small portion of what the system is going to encounter in real life. Okay. So mm -hmm. if you take that performance as the indication of how the system is going to, is going to perform, it's actually going to be highly misleading. And we read the paper and we said, wow, that's a, hey, great, great idea. And second, wait, this problem is also part of our recommender system experience. Like we test things with, with, with our test set, but then sometimes, you know, unexpected behavior pops up. A real case <laughs> that I can, that I can cite is we were working with electronics, with an electronic shop and we were doing add to cart recommendation. So the query mm -hmm. item is what people are adding into the cart and what you need to predict is a good completion for it because you want the people to buy more standard, you know, add to cart recommendation. And of course, people were buying a TV, a $600 TV, and we were suggesting a $9 HDMI cable. Of course, it's a very good suggestion. If you buy a TV, you probably need HDMI cable. But then in production, somebody bought an HDMI cable and the system was suggesting a TV, <laughs> which of course is a terrible idea because if you're buying a $9 HDMI cable, you don't want to be, you know, like upsold for $600 of TV, right? But the crucial aspect- Very rarely. Yeah, very rarely, very, very rarely. <laughs> but the crucial aspect of this, of course, you know, everybody has an horror story about recommender systems, so, you know, everybody's his own. But the crucial aspect of this is that this is something that we as human, as shoppers, recognize immediately as stupid, but the system does not. And if your test set, for whatever reason, didn't contain this option, you will never figure out what would happen in this case, okay? And so mm -hmm. we thought, well, maybe we can take a page from the Microsoft playbook and do behavioral testing for recommender system, which means together with online testing, offline testing, and so on and so forth, we can augment 
the type of testing that we do with some behavioral tests based on the use cases and domain and that we can discuss how to do it. But that's kind of the idea. And we want to promote not just, you know, we want to promote two things. First, an explicit discussion about this trade-off in the community. Like even mm-hmm. when now we publish a paper, we typically list uh, iterate or MRR or NDCG, whatever. But then we don't really often, we don't really go deeper in understanding, you know, why the model performs the way it does on several use cases. So we want the field to be more aware of this of these cases. And B, we also build an open source library to help people actually do this. Because behavioral testing okay. are awesome, but think about, you know, but there's a lot of work to produce them and, you know, and, and run them at scale. And so what we wanted to do is to provide a, you know, a good software abstraction for people to, you know, actually use them in their everyday industry or research life. So one mm-hmm. side is the philosophy of it. And the other is very practical. Is it, okay, I really like this behavioral testing. How do I go about, uh, you know, doing them in my, in my life? Okay, so I really like that examples that you brought up, and uh, I assume you have it in other domains as well. So you were referring to the e-commerce domain with that example of TV and HDMI cable, which just there is a sequence which is right and a sequence that is bad. So this is the difference between that complementary item recommendation and similar item recommendation. But you might also have seen that in other domains, like in, in, in streaming or a video on demand, recommending Harry Potter, the first movie, after having seen the second movie doesn't really make sense. So there are also very rare cases where I believe that this is relevant for people seeing the first part after the second. But um, <laughs> what, what I have been thinking about is, you just mentioned it, about scaling. So these examples, they make totally sense. But how do you really go about scaling these tests? Because no one wants to handcraft all this stuff and just maybe enable some some more generic rules that are about which sequences make sense and which don't. How do you scale it? So what do you need to be provided by your data or by, by, by something else that makes sure that you could really run many of those tests and not really or only uncover those, of course, um, very straight cases? Yeah, I mean, very good question. So the the answer depends really about the type of test you want to run, but I'm going to divide it basically in two. One is, you know, the exploiting the link between prediction and user and item feature. And the second one is, you know, doing a bit of, you know, latent space deep learning magic to automate some similarity judgment. So let's start with the first one. When you do a prediction on the test set nowadays, what you typically have is a golden label. Let's say, yes, the user watch the Harry Potter 3 next. And, mm-hmm. and, and you ask the, the model to give you five recommendations. And then if Harry Potter 3 is in this five recommendation, is you know one more eight or whatever you're using to measure, you know, and, and everybody's fine. Uh, one thing that we want to do is to join imagine instead of instead of using imagine this is a panda data frame, we want the prediction to contain not just and and the target item, not just the SKU or the ID. We want it to contain other feature that we may actually leverage to make this judgment. Okay, so in the case of HDMI cable and, and the TV, we may want to have the price and the category there as well. So the rule is not going to be a specific rule of, hey, TV don't go with HDMI cable if the HDMI cable went first. That's too specific and it won't scale. The rule will be if this is a complementary use cases, you know, you should preview, like, you know, you, you should have the second item to be in a different category than the first one and typically, you know, to, to be, you know, mm-hmm. on a different price level than that one. Okay. 
So you're going to enforce mm-hmm. the general pattern. You're not going to enforce the, you know, the singular cases. And the game here is not find something that is right all the times. The game here is give you a relative sense of how this model that you're building is performing against something else. And then you can always go and see the individual prediction. It may or may not be correct, but it kind of gives you a trend. Again, like it gives you a way to have this discussion explicitly instead of going after case by case when things happen in production. So this is number one. Number mm-hmm. two, a bit more, a bit fancier is if you have, we can discuss how to build it, but if you have a latent space on, on the items and the properties that you have, now you can use this latent space to automatically generate tests of interest without any human intervention. Let's keep, uh, let's take again an example from session based recommendation. Let's say mm-hmm. Spotify playlist, very, very famous data set. It's included in the reckless. You, the, the problem is simple for, for, for people that don't know the data set. You are given the first N items of a playlist and you just need to guess, you know, how the playlist continues. So standard, mm-hmm. let's say sequence based, session based recommendation, if you, if you will. Okay. And what we want from a recommender system is robustness, okay? Which means that if we change one of the song in the input to something that is very similar, but not the same, we want to make sure that the output doesn't change drastically, right? We want mm-hmm. to ensure that, you know, that there's some grad- gradients in, in, you know, how the system behaves. But what does it mean to be similar? And of course, if you have a latent space of the song, what you're going to do is that you're going to take your first input session, you're going to swap you know, some of these items with items that are closer in the latent space. And then you're going to mm-hmm. compare how far the new recommendations are compared to the standard one. Okay. And then you're going to get immediately without human intervention, a bit of a sense of how the, you know, the, the recommender is overfitting maybe to specific song or specific item or specific sequence versus how the recommender is actually trying to get a bit more of the vibe and the preferences around it. Of course, mm-hmm. the better the latent space, the more accurate this is. But again, the point here is not to be accurate on all the tests, you know, data points is giving you a new lens for interpreting how this recommender system behaves as opposed to this other strategy that you're testing. Okay, I understand. Actually, your implementation that you are referring to, so there's a paper, that paper has been published at SIGIR last year, and that paper also came with a corresponding implementation, which is Reckless. And within that implementation, I saw that you are also basically providing these interfaces for some tests. So how easy is it actually to really get started from it? So do I really need to think a lot, uh, be creative and put a lot of effort into coming up with the first right tests or is there already a set of test types that I could start using and also being able to apply them to different domains or how easy would it be with reckless to get started with behavioral testing you can think of it as you know as as your you know as as a as a, as a lego block you know one of the one of the nice mm-hmm. lego that i see behind you uh, <laughs> so if you if you want if you want to um to start, Reckless gives you access to popular data set, MovieLens, Coveo, and Spotify for different use cases. Similar items, MovieLens, uh, session-based Spotify, and add to cart, so complementary items, Coveo. So you already mm-hmm. have a Python wrapper that kind of downloads this data set, which are public, and give it to you in a way for you that is very easy to use. Also, Reckless gives you ready-made tests for this data set, depending on these use cases. So if mm-hmm. you have a... Uh, add to cart use cases or uh, sequence based use cases, you can already use what Reckless provide you. Okay. And there's like, okay. you know, in, as in the Lego example, you can just basically build 
whatever we give you, you know, out of the box with the instruction that we provide you. It's very simple. There's also a collab. If you don't even want to install anything, you just want to get the feeling of how it is run like Reckless, you can just go on the collab and, and run it. But mm-hmm. as with many Legos, you can also recombine these blocks in other shapes and figures that we couldn't anticipate to build whatever whatever you want. So you can keep the data set that we, we give you, but add new tests, of course, mm-hmm. or you can use this, this set, this test on your data set or a combination of all this. You can start from what we give you and extend it with your own custom test and just use Reckless as your, let's say, scaffolding and kind mm-hmm. of, again, use Reckless as kind of this uh, philosophical underpinning of this, you know, testing routine and then use the out-of-the-box functionality that Reckless provide you for storing data or plotting data or stuff like that. Um, so one thing we're adding soon for the for the beta, so the beta has been sponsored by a bunch of like very looking forward uh, so forward-looking companies in the in the ML space, so uh, Comet mm-hmm. and Neptune, which I, which I which I say hi now. And uh, what we've been doing with them is now we're gonna produce open source connector to these tools that people already use. So when you use Reckless, you're gonna end up in dashboard that you already work with with all the results of Reckless. So if you use Reckless to build your own testing suit and use that in your I don't know CI/CD or whatever pipeline then you can basically leverage this same intelligence into tools that you already use. And that's kind of the future of Reckless for us. Reckless mm-hmm. is this piece in your pipeline, but then it connects, you know, in a purely open source matter to whatever you want, you know, to read this, you know, this test on. And Reckless just provides you like the scaffolding and the way to run this smoothly. So that means that Reckless already comes with some handy pre-made examples across different domains because you mentioned the Coveo dataset, you mentioned the Spotify dataset. So we already have a couple of different domains. So that, for example, if you are working on some kind of playlist or music recommenders, then the best thing to do would be to go for the Spotify playlist continuation example, the data set, and check out the existing tests there and to go from them at more or maybe also uh, adapt your data set accordingly that you could get started more easier. Is it correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're working on this type of use cases or if you're writing a paper on MovieLens, the integration is ready-made. You can just go there, Perfect. like the, the, the code will download like MovieLens for you, you know, we'll do the splits and we'll run the test that we prepared and you can already include them in your paper or your analysis or whatever that is. And then from there, you can start swapping in the Lego blocks and become more and more sophisticated. But at day zero, you can just start with what we provided in these use cases and you can get a feeling of, you know, how this works. Okay. And I also see that, uh, I mean, you are a big fan of open source projects. So I would also say shout out to the community. So if there are people who want to contribute or who want to add new tests, new data sets or something like that, I guess they are welcome to make contributions to the project, aren't they? They're super welcome. We will, we're starting now the what we call the beta phase of, of Reckless. So Reckless was, was released at the beginning of this year, basically. And we started up like a private tour of recommender system shop. Uh, so Tubi, BBC, Meta, Facebook, sorry, Meta, uh, eBay, and so on. And we start collecting feedback for people running recommender system at scale. And with those feedback and, you know, the public thoughts that were, that were giving like in this last couple of months, like this one, for example, we're getting all together to build the second version of Reckless and making a bit better. So everybody wants to contribute, get feedback, you know, please try it out, 
reach out. This is the perfect moment actually to be involved with this because <laughs> we're actively looking for, you know, for people to join us in the second phase of this, of this adventure. Uh, and we really love open source. And we, again, we're very thankful for, for our sponsor and people that really understand that the ML community, the Rexis community can advance, you know, even thanks to, you know, the generous time and resources of, of people, institution, they really believe in this idea of sharing knowledge instead of keeping it private. Yeah, I guess we are relying a lot on open source tools. And especially if there is a new one that does this interesting challenge or solve it or makes us better understanding what's going on. I mean, you you mentioned that term of silent failures where we think something is going right because we just look at, let's say, MRR or NDCG and assume, oh, this is our best model. It's now in production and also CTR or something like that is behaving consistently. But then under the hood, there are some very, very odd recommendations so capturing them would be would be I guess a nice task. I have come across that evaluation that Microsoft performed when evaluating in-house their checklist performance uh, and I've seen that you have done something similar with Reckless. Could you elaborate on that on how you judge that it's adding additional value there? Absolutely. So if you uh, this is public information so if you look at the paper um, you're going to find a real-world example uh, comparing an open-source implementation, uh, Prot2Vec in this case, for Recommender, uh, against um, uh, the Google APIs. So again, it's a public provider that everybody can try it out. You know, just, you know, just sign up and you, and you can train your model and try it out. What is interesting, again, this is not about which model is better or which model is worse. It's about mm -hmm. understanding that these models are fundamentally different. But this difference is obscured by standard offline test. In mm -hmm. particular, if you judge these two models on the on our data set and uh, you judge it by, you know, NDCG, MRR, and so on, these models are basically indistinguishable, okay? So the naive thing here to do is read this table and say, well, these models are basically the same or one is likely better, whatever. But then when you dig deeper with Reckless, you find out that this model achieved this performance in very, very different ways. For mm -hmm. example, the Google model is much better on popular products so it's very good when, when, when somebody's browsing in the popular part of the shop, while Protovac tends to be better in the, you know, in the long tail, okay? But Google is better with brand A and B, and, you know, and, and Protovac is better with brand C and D. Uh, the job of Reckless, and maybe even the job of practitioner, is not telling you which one is better. This is the job of the entire organization to understand what are the priorities of the organization and what does it mean to produce value. What Reckless <laughs> gives you Again, is a principle, explicit way to address the discussion, you know, in a structure, in a structured form. Instead of writing ad hoc analysis or chasing down, you know, examples and qualitative failures, Reckless gives you a one-stop shop for you to make all this consideration and to immediately see how these two systems differ. So, mm -hmm. with, I don't know if Google is better for you or Protovet is better for you. That's for you to decide. But you need to know while deciding this you know, that you're going to privilege these items instead of this one if you pick A or this item instead of that one if you pick B. Yeah, I guess that's very, very valuable insights you are gaining from applying this tool to your recommender model. And, uh, because then, and this brings us back to the name, 
really gives you the opportunity to understand how your model behaves in different scenarios. And as you mentioned, there might be different demands. So you might end up going with one model that is doing a better job on popular items or something like that. But at least the insight can give you some hint into making better decisions. So um, I really like that point that you are bringing up there. I assume that people will soon also have the chance to actively engage in a challenge around this because as far as I as I know, there is an upcoming challenge that is hosted by Coveo. So as far as I know, you already donated a data set to the last challenge of SIGIR, which was the Ecom data challenge and also basically the data set that is part of Reckless's inbuilt data sets. But there's a new challenge coming up for this year's CIKM. Can you tell us a bit more about this one? Of course. So people from Coveo and some friends from NVIDIA, Microsoft, uh, Stanford, and Bocon University, so like this stellar team between academia and, and industry, will organize one of the CIKM data challenge in this upcoming CIKM this fall, which is going to be an hybrid conference in uh, um, Atlanta for people that want to come, but it's going to be virtual for people that want to attend virtually. And the cool thing about this data challenge is that it's going to be heavily inspired by all the discussion that like by all the teams that we've been discussing today uh, is about, uh, you know, rounded uh, evaluation of recommender system. So what we're going to do, we're going to invite team from, you know, all over the world to submit their models and to compare their models, not just on MRR or whatever ranking metrics that we typically use for data challenge, but we're going to explicitly invite people to compete on behavioral tests, on qualitative assessment. To make sure that you know, even when we judge, you know, which model is better than the other one, we're gonna take into account a bit more of a nuanced approach to all of this. So it's gonna be if you, if you follow the Reckless website, is reckless.io. We're gonna make an announcement, a specific web page detailing, you know, the exact rules of the challenge and how the challenge is gonna unfold. We are targeting the first week of August as a general, you know, starting period, which will give people, you know, two full months to participate in this challenge, submit their proposal. Uh, and then, you know, write a paper and then come to the to the actual conference to have like a workshop creator and discuss the good findings, uh, you know, about about the challenge and what people like, what people didn't and kind of produce together, you know, some sort of the first, let's say, quantitative plus behavioral testing challenge in the field in the hope to raise awareness, you know, among all practitioners mm -hmm. of how important it is to, you know, be all together a bit better in evaluating recommender system. That sounds amazing. So far, we have seen many challenges uh, spanning different industries from Twitter over to Spotify or datasets from Xing or other ones that have been engaged with the Rexus challenge that is held annually alongside with the Recommender Systems Conference. But I've never so far really encountered a challenge where the evaluation of a recommender system or especially the behavioral evaluation is at the center. So how are you going about ranking people that are evolving? So it's about who is writing the best tests, the best behavioral tests, or, or how are people going to judge on who is doing a better job there? That's a very good question. So we're still finalizing the rules of the challenge because it's a very new way of, of actually getting people to compete. So the simplicity, which is also the flaw at the end of the day of just having MRR, is that it's very easy how to judge people, but then it kind of doesn't tell you the whole story. And so when <laughs> we want to move away from that idea, or sorry, not move away, that's incorrect. When we want to extend this idea to a more nuanced evaluation, it also opens the question of like, 
but how do we make sure to run behavioral tests that make sense and that people cannot game? Because we don't want people to overfit to the new behavioral test just to win the <laughs> challenge. So it's, yeah. it's, it's an open discussion and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna release the new rules soon. One thing that we're surely uh, open to, and that is maybe, maybe part of the challenge or part of the workshop finally, is for people to contribute new tests as well. So in the process of, of, of organizing the challenge, we are gonna surely, you know, work with, uh, with Reckless as a package to add tests and, and, you know, to add nuances to that. But what we want to really have practitioner thinking with us uh, in the final day of the workshop is, what did we miss? Like, irrespective of what it will end up being part of the evaluation, what is still mm -hmm. missing? What can we do to make it better? How can we scale it to a different data set? These are all the questions that we want to answer with the community. So compared to a, to a normal challenge, it's sure part of a challenge, but it's generally also like an invite for the community to come together and kind of like build this, you know, knowledge in the open as, a, as an open source package that, that everybody can benefit from. Okay, cool. So let's stay excited about how we will differentiate good from bad tests and then yeah. rank teams properly as an extension to these ideas of judging recommenders only by retrieval quality. Okay, so the upcoming CIAKM challenge. And did I get right that there are many other challenges going on alongside the CIAKM? Because I wasn't really aware of that before. So you mentioned that is one of the challenges. There's usually so last year, I'm not aware of how many will be this year, maybe one or more. But like last year, if you look at last couple of years, they may, they may be one more than one challenge. Last year, I think it was two, the actual number. And that depends okay. on a combination of like organization that can provide support to this, you know, organizers timeline, you know, how the workshop are organized and so on and so forth. So I don't know the exact number this year. I know this, you know, ours is going to be there, uh, of course. Um, but in the last year, there have been different. CIKM is a generalist, con like compared to Rexis, is a generalist conference. So information retrieval is one of the aspects, but it may totally be possible that there's another challenge related to, I don't know, NLP, like query understanding or like, you know, or like search or something like that. Um, so yeah, but, but the conference is pretty cool. And I'm actually for once looking forward to have a conference, not on Zoom, like in the last couple of years, but actually be there. So if you're there, you know, please come and say hi or reach out to LinkedIn before. Super happy to meet you in person. Perfect. We'll definitely include all these references as always in the show notes of today's episode and make sure that everyone who wants to know more or to reach out and connect to you gets the proper references. Jacopo, I actually also would like to check out your extensive blog post series because um, I have come across some blog posts where you have been talking about the postmodern stack that kind of integrates the modern data with the modern machine learning stack. Can you tell us a bit more about what you have been writing there about and what your points are? Sure, absolutely. So uh, together with two dear friends of mine and colleague Chiro and, and Andrea, We have this small series on Towards Data Science, which is called MLOps Without Much Ops. Um, and it's like a five-part series, and the postmodern stack is the last one, that is partly philosophical and partly practical. <laughs> and it's basically the journey of our relatively small team uh, with the right open source and, 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 and SaaS solution can build really cutting-edge ML thanks to this growing ecosystem in the MLOps and DataOps tools that wasn't there five, five years ago. 
So it's kind of like us, after all the mistakes that we did, <laughs> all the problems that we had, <laughs> kind of going back to the community and say, hey, guys, if you had these problems, this is how we solve them. Maybe we can mm-hmm. kind of shortcut your journey a bit by telling you what we did. <laughs> and so that's the general you know, context. And if, if you guys want, like, please check out the, the entire series. There's a bunch of like, you know, uh, hidden gems here and there. Um, and the final post, which has been released like four days ago or whatever, is the postmodern stack one, which is a full end-to-end repository, completely open source. You can use it today. That goes from raw data, in case recommendation data, in this particular case, behavioral data, to an LSTM uh, session-based recommender that produce prediction in real time. Okay. And, and the point of the series, which is exemplified by the repo, but is much bigger is you do not need like a team of 10 people to train this, run this, or, or, you know, or monitor this. Actually, you don't need any DevOps person at all to do that. If you have <laughs> an end to end data science, if you have a stat sign that really understand this recommendation problem, you can empower this person to work on the data, work on the training, work on the serving basically just with you know a bit of Python and SQL and then having the infrastructure completely abstracted away from him. And it works. Like it works with millions of data points and it works you know with vet to make people very, very productive in our experience and very effective mm-hmm. as people now are not bound to ask, hey, can you spin up a GPU for me? Hey, can you fix this Kubernetes problem for me? Um, you know, hey, you know, where is this data coming from? Now mm-hmm. you empower people to you know, go at the source of the data, making sure the data is correct, and then do the training and serving basically automatically, and see the result of their work in production in you know as little as you know an afternoon or a day. In in our experience, effective machine learning people are the one that close the feedback loop as soon as possible. Like mm-hmm. the best way to iterate on machine learning is not going in a cave and do experiment for three months, is to ship something in production as soon as possible. When you have the full feedback loop, so you can track everything that happens from training to mod to to, um, to to prediction to 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 feedback, and iterate on that to, with error analysis, you know, reckless and all the tools that you want. Unless you're doing research on a static data set, we found that in production setting, going to production early, you know, carefully but early, is the key to be productive ML people. I see your point there. So rather start, for example, with a model that is rule-based first, but directly engage in writing a proper endpoint that can be called from somewhere and do some basic stuff first to have your problem solved end-to-end and then make the iteration and not over-engineer your model from the very beginning is, I guess, a good advice to also get a feeling for the overall system and the complexities there because there are so many things to cover that sometimes make a bigger difference than your your model performance uh, at all yeah uh, what would be the main learnings that you had throughout the challenge or that you're sharing within these blog posts just to give us a short teaser when people want to want to read it of course so when you start in this mlops series which the Bodia company repos there's a bunch of repos for the community uh, the question we set ourselves to ask was if we rebuild Tuzo today what what tools would we use? Like you know, what would mm-hmm. be what would be the, the shape of a startup right now that needs to be effective with some resources, but not a limited one, but needs to be effective in building great recommender system. And the answer was, well, we wouldn't reuse anything that we used five years ago. So the short answer <laughs> is like everything we built five years ago is not relevant anymore. Okay, mm-hmm. and in the process of discovering this non relevancy, we kind of build out you know the poster modern stack and and the series telling people what we would change. 
And what mm-hmm. we would change, I mean, it's not that we didn't do it five years ago because we were stupid, but because we couldn't. But what we would change is this fundamental piece. Buy or use from open source everything that is not your core problem. Like mm-hmm. the most important thing is never upfronting any research or engineering or time to do things that are not what makes sense for your company. So if my company mm-hmm. is uh, AI company, what I want to focus on was the intelligence of my model or the uplift in the business method that my model provides. I'm not an infra company. I don't care about infrastructure. I don't care about scalability. I don't care about any of that. Not because I don't care about it, but because this is something that people take for granted while using my services. But it's not why they pay me. They pay me for my recommendation. They don't pay me for my Kubernetes cluster. So everything that I can offload to my cloud provider, an open source tool, or you know, a, like another, like a, like a SaaS solution, and that that kind of keeps me free from you know, like all of this maintenance, is typically a good investment in the early stage. Mm-hmm. If you think about startups or products as a reinforcement learning agent, they need to balance exploration and exploitation, right? In the very beginning, it's mostly about exploration. You don't really know what's going to work. So you need to try different things. And, the, and, and when you try different things, you should spend your effort building the thing you're testing that is a recommender system, not the infrastructure. So it's much better to pay, let's say, SageMaker, if it, even if it's SageMaker is a bit pricey for your mm-hmm. serving initially, than building your serving solution yourself without even knowing that this is an important part of your startup. Okay. And then the more you go from exploration to exploitation, so the more you go deep in one aspect that you know that it works, of course, now it makes sense to internalize some of this to lower the cost at scale. But you can always do that later. Like when, when, if you start with pass and, and, uh, and, and, and open source, you can already decide at some point that you want to internalize this cost, but you don't upfront it. If you do the opposite, you build all this, let's say Kubernetes deployment solution from your, from your, for your company. And then you find out in, you know, in six months that this is not really the best, the, the crux of the business. Now you wasted six months for, you know, for no reason. So the yeah. good thing of buying everything in the beginning, if you know how these pieces can be fit together, is that you can always swap one of these pieces later for something that, you know, that you, that you build internally. But at least initially you get this velocity and this hyper productivity. So this is mm-hmm. what we learn. Like thinking about products as startups, even inside a, a large company. But if you think about this, you're gonna get an incredible amount of like, you know, speed, velocity, and also team, you know, team satisfaction. Builders want to build. ML people want to see the result of what they do online having an impact. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 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 mm-hmm. and they don't want to be to do infrastructure. And my key <laughs> point is that they don't need to. Up until a certain point, you don't need DevOps people to be good at ML. And we show like that this is the case. Go on our repo, download it, run it. You show that you can build a transformer-based recommender system, maybe not state-of-the-art, but very close to state-of-the-art, with your laptop and 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 two tools and you know and Metaflow and, and Snowflake and, and whatever. Like it's very easy for you to get started today. It's, it's really an incredible moment to be in this field. 
Nowadays, with that abundance of tools, and therefore I also guess that your comparison is a bit unfair. So you are treating yourself a bit too hard because I guess plenty of these tools might have also not been available five years ago when you were starting out with Tuzu. Um, but however, I think it's good to know, okay, what's out there and what if we wanted to do the same today and what are the tools that we might gonna use in that case. So uh, definitely worth checking out. I definitely believe that Reckless would be a part of that system or the parts that you would stitch together and especially also not a system that was available five years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But thanks God. The, the field is getting much better. The feeling is getting much better, which I think is good for, is good news for people that are sophisticated enough to contribute to the field, which I think there's a lot of them. But mm -hmm. they, for, you know, personal reason, whatever reason, they don't work in, you know, the Alibaba or Amazon of this world. And, and, and while five years ago, it would be harder for them to get their voice heard, even in the research community, uh, I think at least like a small part that, you know, what my team actually was able to do in the last two, two years is to prove that this is not more the case. You mm -hmm. can be part of this community if you know how to use your data and your tool, even if you're not Amazon. There's interesting thing to say and to do at any scale. That's, I guess, a good remark, um, also advice for, for people who are, who are listening. Uh, Jacopo, actually, uh, we are always finishing this episode with a couple of questions. And I also want to give you the chance to give me some, some maybe new answers to these questions. So actually, looking at the recommender systems field, and of course, I assume that behavioral testing is one of the challenges you might mention. What other challenges do you see? Uh, so this is a very good question. I, I was discussing this with a, uh, with, with a friend, uh, like, like literally last week. Um, so another thing about testing that I want to mention, uh, in connection with session based recommendation is the maybe misleading way in which offline evaluation works for session based recommenders. Let me, mm -hmm. let me, let me, let me explain what I mean. So session based recommendation, as I said, very bullish about them, super important, but a lot of the, Things we do in testing nowadays, even us, like, you know, we're guilty. I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody else <laughs> is we take historical data about the sessions and we ask the model to predict again, like what is going to be the next interaction, which mm -hmm. all fine and good, but we need to remind ourselves this is a small approximation of what we're actually testing. Because in this context, recommender system acts more like reinforcement learning system, meaning that the prediction that you make is going to influence the next event itself. So mm -hmm. if the only thing we're doing is testing on static data set, we may massively overfit to not just user preferences, but to also the specific structure of the website. Because of course, if you look at observational data of past interaction, a lot of the sequence that you observe are not really because of the preferences, are because of the fact that a website is structured in a certain way. So there are mm -hmm. some items that are very, you know, that are one click away from each other. And there are some items that are 10 clicks away from each other. And so there's this kind of like, it's very hard with observational data only to decouple, you know, these problems. So one challenge that I see is how do we make session-based recommender system, which are going to be crucial in the future of the field, you know, tested in a way, not just on the behavioral side, but even quantitative in a way that is not misleading or that is not prone to overfitting because of this reinforcement learning nature of the problem. And I think this is a huge problem because of course you can build a data challenge by building a generator of data. Like a, imagine, you know, the open AI gym for reinforcement learning. You can build a gym for recommender system. I think Criteo did one two years ago, mm -hmm. but it's a one, but it's a gym for one data set. The question here is, 
can we take an arbitrary data set or an arbitrary use cases and be able to do this kind of reinforcement learning evaluation and understand how well does it work? So I think this is a super huge challenge and super interesting. And if anybody listening to this wants to you know, exchange notes about this, we're super happy to discuss this topic. Perfect. Then I would definitely point you and also other listeners to the episode that I did with Olivier Yunen, where we actually also talked about reinforcement learning for recommender systems and that whole topic of off-policy evaluation, which tries a little bit to solve this problem, but I'm with you. It's far from being solved. So feedback loops and this setting or overfitting on the historical data is still a problem that needs to be solved properly, but I guess there are some good strains of thought going into the right direction there. Okay, so this was question number one, but there are two remaining. Sure. <laughs> okay, looking at the Rexus space, so what would you deem as your favorite recommender product that you use as a consumer? Uh, I mean, I, I I would be biased because you know I work for a recommender system company, so I'm not going to mention any 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 product because I think it would be unfair. But I'm going to mention some libraries if that's okay, which are open source, so they're like they're completely autonomous. So I've uh, I've seen a genuine interest even from the big guys in recommend in making recommender system more approachable for mm -hmm. many people without sacrificing accuracy, complexity, and so on. So TensorFlow recommender. PyTorch recommender, and especially my friends at NVIDIA Merlin, so guys, <laughs> um, have been doing uh, a very good job, I think, in democratizing um, modern two-tower, you know, embeddings-based recommendation through open source code. Um, mm -hmm. And so I I'm happy to mention this effort because they're not commercial in any way. Everybody can try them out tomorrow. Um, and I think the part of the future of this field is going to be how companies adapt and incorporate this framework to then change them to their own use cases and you know tweak them to their own use cases but without the need to reinvent the basics of you know of our two tower system work okay yeah in, in, in the same sense that you know they will use you know tensorflow without you know worrying about how you know you know stochastic gradient send work okay we just use it out of the box and, and and use it for our for our things there's a further layer of abstraction that new frameworks will provide which is very, very helpful for people that want to be productive and still don't sacrifice anything about mm -hmm. accuracy in the, in the actual, in the actual work. Think about what Akin Face did for NLP of basically making cutting edge models one import away from most people or almost mm -hmm. cutting edge model. Mm -hmm. I think what these people are doing is kind of do, what NVIDIA is trying to do is kind of do the same, but for the recommender system, as in you have a use case of a recommender system. Start with importing our library, and then you can make it fancier if it needs to be. Don't reinvent the wheel each and every time. I would append at least two additional. Uh, Microsoft has also a great repository, which is called Microsoft Recommenders or Recommenders under the Microsoft GitHub organization. So it's also a very nice point to find many implementations of Recommenders. And maybe apart from it, there is a more recent one, which is called RecBully. So R-E-C-B-O-L-E, RecBully, and they have also implemented quite a lot of uh, the standard algorithms in the Rexa space. So I guess more than 70. So it's tremendous to see how many different algorithms there are already and which are deemed to be the standard ones. Yeah, I guess no one needs to start from scratch uh, when he or she wants to get started with recommender systems. Yeah. 
Last but not least, if you are to nominate a person who I should talk to in this podcast, who would that be? Oh, absolutely. I think you should definitely talk to my friend Surya. is uh, leading mm -hmm. personalization and information retrieval at Lowe's. Um, and he was previously at uh, Home Depot. Um, Surya is uh, kind of one of these you know, larger-than-life figure in the space. So he's not just an accomplished practitioner, but he's the co-organizer. He's the mind behind the two most important event in, in e-commerce for us, which is Sigayar e-commerce on one side. Uh, see you guys in Madrid, if you, if you, if you, if you're there. And, uh, uh, ECNLP on the other side. Um, it's kind of a, these two event between academia and industry. And it's kind of, you know, the, the mastermind, the master organizer between, between, you know, of, of all of them. Um, so I think it would be great because it will offer you both a very practical perspective of running some of the biggest e-commerce in the world, but also mm -hmm. is really in touch with, like applied research in, in, in information retrieval recommender system and so on and so forth. And I'm sure he's going to have like, you know, great, you know, talking points. Cool. Perfect. Then shout out there. And uh, I will make sure that this gets on my list for people I reach out to. Yeah, Jacobo, it was nice talking to you. It was some very great insight, also some very practical insights, which this podcast is also dedicated because it's not only the research, but especially also the practice. And you have shown a good record of spanning research and practice with your contributions. And if people who are into that direction want to spend time and also some added value on this, for example, with Reckless, then they have now some additional good pointers or maybe ideas to start with. Thank you very much for, for having me again. Thanks everybody, you know, to, 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 to spend some time with us virtually. And we look forward to your feedback and comments. Again, the library is open source. Please, you know, check it out. Add a star, share it with your friends. If you think it can be useful, it will help us support our, you know, new developments and kind of like help support the fields with our work. Thank you again. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. Please also leave a review on Podchaser. And last but not least, if you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing and make sure not to miss the next episode because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. See you. Goodbye. Goodbye.